Okay, this morning we're going to speak on a subject called Stand Up and Walk Out of It. The Lord told me you're going to need this, and especially with the verse of what it was. But he didn't tell me what it was going to be about, but we'll read the verse together and then you'll kind of understand it. So when the Lord does this to you and he tells you, hey, you're going to need this verse, pay attention because it was one week later after he spoke that. But I land at the bottom of my staircase, and so when the Lord does something like that to you, beware. There's going to be times when you're going to need this principle. And you can tell that I really didn't know that much at the time, but uh, we've learned a lot about how to handle these things a little bit better now than what it was then. So I'm going to put you on notice that there's some times in your life, I hope not many, that you're going to have to walk in this principle. But I want to highlight the principle that the Lord spoke to me. So we're going to start with the verse. It started in Acts 14. It was a man, and he received a healing. Now, you would think that when you receive a healing, things are going to end up well for you that day. But it's Paul and Barnabas. They're on a mission trip. It says, at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. It gives you a little case history on this, and it said he was lame from his mother's womb, and he had never walked in his entire life. But this man was listening to Paul preaching, and this is what's supposed to be happening at the preaching of the word. The man listening to Paul as he spoke, when Paul had fixed his gaze on the man, he saw that the man had the faith to be made well. Isn't that the most unique statement? So Paul is preaching, and there's a guy in the audience and he's completely crippled since birth, and Paul sees he has the faith to be made well. Now, with what happens next in this story, I'm kind of shocked that Paul even got to find out a case history on this man. So it says when he fixed his gaze on him, so Paul kind of locked eyes with this guy. He saw that he had the faith to be made well, and Paul said to him, stand upright on your feet. And so he just gave him a command, a charge, and the guy leaped up, and he began to walk. Now, you think about this when Paul said this, stand up and walk. At this point, the guy had two choices to make. And he could have stood up on his feet, or he could have thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why would someone tell me, a cripple, that I could walk? And he could have laughed. He could have scoffed. He could have taken Paul's command and thought, wow, who does he think he is, God? Or he could have said the worst thing or the thing I think most people say is, it's my identity. I'm a cripple. I am a cripple. And so a lot of times the Lord will give you a command and he's telling you stand up and walk. And it's your complete identity. You know, there's so many different things that your religious mind can do at this moment. So the man saw that Paul was giving him a chance to come out of what he had. And a lot of times there were these single commands given. So those people are people that are challenged to have a choice to obey and receive the work of God in their life. Or we can start arguing with him. And so most of the time, people that say they believe the Lord start arguing with the Lord, and he will give us a command. It's an instant. That's why we want things. We want things instant. And this is your choice here is you can get into your reasoning and begin to argue. Now, we're going to skip down a little bit because when the guys healed, immediately they want to worship Paul and Barnabas. So in verse 11, when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they raised their voice in their Laconian language, and they said, the gods have become men, and they have come down to us. So they began calling Barnabas Zeus 
and Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. Moreover, the priests of Zeus in the temple were just outside the city. They started bringing oxen. Now, you have to be in a primitive country for them to start bringing oxen to you and garlands to the gates of the city. And they wanted to offer a sacrifice with the crowd. So now they're like, wow, we've seen something. I mean, literally, the gods have come down. We have them right here in our midst. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about it, they tore their robes. So they just took their good clothes and they started tearing them up. And they rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are men. We have the same nature as you have. We're just preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things and serve a living God. Like you're serving these useless things in your life, you're worshiping, but we want you to serve a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that's within them. Well, things are going really good here. They have got the crowd's attention. The miracle has uh, actually turned the people a little too far in the wrong, in, in the right direction. I mean, they were turning to believing in God, but now they think the humans themselves are God. But what happens in uh, 19 is the Jews hear about the miracles taking place. So the Jews from another city follow them from Antioch and Iconium, and they take the same crowds that Paul and Barnabas have just preached to, and they win them over. Now, there are some people that will just decide to follow you in life. You are their mission to take whatever you say and change it. They want to take whoever you're leading to the Lord, and it's their mission to destroy what you're preaching. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're jealous, and they want to come on the scene, and they want to win over the crowds because too many people are listening to what Paul and Barnabas have to say. And I don't know what it is about someone that is really having... Uh, great signs and wonders and miracles in their ministry that people will self-appoint themselves to follow them around and make their life miserable. And so this is what takes place, but it's a little bit worse than just making their life miserable. You know, someone made this quip, bad people will often travel further to do evil than good people will travel to do good. Why is it? Why is it for the most that people will get out of whatever they're doing in life and think it's more important to bring harm than good people will travel to do what's right? So at this point, these rabbles are not content just to get the crowd to listen to them, but they actually take Paul and they stone him. They stone Paul. You know, you're thinking about it, and that's such a short little sentence, unless it's you. And then I'd want to write a book about it. But it just says they stone Paul, and that's all the Bible tells you right there. And then it moves on. Puts the, and they dragged him out of the city thinking that he was dead. Can you imagine that after this bloody stoning that took place with, with all these guys just, just throwing these stones at him until the point that they have him down. They're like, okay, we've killed him. And they think they better get him out of the city. So one or more of the men grab the body of Paul by an arm or the leg. And they drag him through the dirt of the streets out of the city. And they leave his body like a dog. That's, that's pretty final. So this begs the question, where was Barnabas? <laughs> All the assistants right now are going, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. It looks like Barnabas, he did the best of anyone Barnabas somehow walked out of it completely. 
So anyway, Paul's drug out of the city and left there. So it's the hatred of the religious people, and it's the crazy reactions of the crowd all mixed in together. So it's a mixture of the craziness and the hatred. And you have these people that are zealous to worship you, and then you have these people that want to kill you at the same time. Now, they didn't stone Paul in order to hurt him. They stoned him in order to take him out. Now, I want you to, just for a minute, imagine what it would feel like for stones to hit your body. Think of what it felt like as each stone would hit you. And getting hit hard enough by these rocks to knock you completely down. Getting hit hard enough in key places, they really think that they've killed you. You know, I was thinking in junior high, they got a bunch of us together and they decided to do an Old Testament biblical stoning at the junior high. I'm telling you, you can feel the pelts as those rocks start hitting you. I was glad it didn't go to this position. But you can feel the frenzies of a crowd when they work themselves up into this hype. So in verse 20, the disciples stood around him. So they drag him to the city, and the disciples follow where they drug him. And they stood around Paul, and it doesn't say they prayed. It didn't say anything. They just stood around him. And suddenly, Paul stood up, and he walked out of it. It's very unusual. Leaves a lot for you to decide what took place at this moment. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up. Now, you know that that was a circle of faith. You might know it's a circle of desperate men of thinking, we need him. You know, sometimes it's the right people around you that pull out of the situation what you need. So you can imagine when the Lord spoke to me and he said this sentence, you're going to have to stand up and walk out of it. Remember that you're going to need this. So we'd come home from a very successful mission trip to the Philippines, and we told our stories. We were telling the numbers of people that were saved. I mean, the whole church went into a frenzy about, wow, we have never seen mission teams accomplish this kind of success. Well, this is the great part of a mission team. You come home, you get to tell your testimonies, everybody's excited about it, but uh Some people have ideas for you after that. Well, in this particular situation, it was the children's church pastors, and they were very dedicated. I remember this lady, she had four or five children, and she would be with me in prison ministry, and she would go clear to the day she's going to give birth, and she's still out there helping me in the prison ministry. And then the day after she gives birth, she's back out there helping me again. They're dedicated. These were very dedicated people. And so when they come to me, they're like, oh, you know, you had a team, and in three and a half weeks, you had 10,000 documented salvations. Well, I know something's up. She said, would you help us lead our evangelistic outreach with the children next weekend? And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, there's a catch to this one. What can you say to someone that's dedicated? I looked at her and I always thought, she's more dedicated than I am in life. I mean, you just looked at her and here she was thinking our trip was, you know, this grand thing. But now I'm looking at how just, you know, I just had always admired her that she just had that kind of tenacity. Anyway, here we were and she had asked me this. And I said, well, what are we going to be doing? And she said, oh, next week this certain movie's coming to Brownwood. And we're going to go out and evangelize at the movie theater. 
Let me just tell you, if you want to die to yourself, there is no quicker way than to evangelize. And there's no quicker way to do it in front of the movie theater. There's something about movies where people are coming for entertainment. They are not in the mood for you to show up. So this movie that was being shown was where they began this process of mixing the idea of children to get them to start experimenting with witchcraft, the Harry Potter series. So as we began our evangelistic outreach with all these children in grade school, uh, I'm designated the leader because so many people had something come up that weekend they couldn't help me. And so here I am. So we're out there. I kept having people that the Lord would give me conversations with. And what shocked me was the Christians. How many Christians were there? I just remember the church librarian at a major church here. And she was telling me why she should come see this movie. And just one by one, I'm watching the Christians. I'm like, oh, there's no hope for them. These so-called Christians, let's keep working with the unevangelized. And then I have someone in my own radio station that has a special program on of sports, and he's bringing his grandchildren to the movie. And his wife's sitting in the car and said, I can't do anything about him. And so this was my experience. I was having many of these conversations, you know, these people and nominal Christians. The lady at the church library told me, well, how can you be against something if you don't even know what you're talking about? Have you seen it? Then if you haven't seen it, then you don't need to be speaking to me. I said, if you were on heroin, would you tell me the same thing? (laughs) Anyway, people just will be determined to repeat what Eve did in the garden. Like, God must be keeping something from me. I want to experience evil. And so this is the story from the beginning of man, and we see where that God is, but we don't learn anything from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, so we're doomed to repeat it. And you can just see what that has ushered into our society by having this type of thing of teaching children that witchcraft is a good thing to experiment with. So anyway, here we were. Anyway, I felt like the Lord had directed a lot of different conversations. But I could not believe the results that we had that day. Those elementary school kids just had such boldness. Even though they had a different reaction with the adults, people were completely taken by these elementary kids that were sharing their faith with them. And those kids had 10 legitimate salvations to the Lord that day. And I thought every one of them were precious. When the kids would share, I mean, adults would give their hearts and their lives to Jesus. And they were very effective in how they shared their faith. So really, I was quite amazed at the results that all I had to do was, you know, just show up and kind of direct the church people away from the kids and let the kids do what they knew to do. And that was win lost people. And it was just amazing seeing the the hearts of the people. Well, I had Renee with me, and she had just returned with me from the Philippines. And Renee is the lady in my mom's Psalm 91 book that was healed of lupus. And she is a character. She's a preacher, and you will never forget her once she has preached. So in the middle of the uh, foyer with me, she spots someone from Bangs, Texas. And this kid looks like he's troubled. You know, he has that kind of troubled look on him. It's a troubled kid, and he's looking for trouble. And so she addresses him and says, hey, you used to be in Bible study really serving the Lord. What's gone wrong? I mean, you can tell that you have left the faith just by the way he's dressing and all the 
things he had done to himself, you could tell the guy was no longer serving the Lord. And we were in a crowd that was wall to wall. Well, it was kind of fun watching Renee because she's such a feisty woman. I just always admire people that share their faith in that sort of a way. Anyway, she starts talking to him about the Lord, and he starts getting riled up. Well, I never spoke to him because I didn't know the guy, and he really respected her because she had preached to him before, so I was just letting their conversation go on. Suddenly, in his riled-up state, his agitated mind, you know, his little trench coat self, and, you know, you're looking at this kid, he points his finger, not at Renee, but at me, and he starts screaming as loud as he can with his finger pointed at me, she just told me I'm going to hell if I go to this movie. Now, I haven't said anything. It's jam-packed with every person I know in Brownwood in there. <laughs> Hopefully they were going to other movies. Oh, he's not going to quit. He still has his finger pointed at me screaming. And I'm trying to get Renee to stand closer. <laughs> but no, he has singled me out. She's telling me I'm going to hell if I'm going to this movie. The next morning, the youth prison ministry with all the employees and also the hospital. Now, I heard about those two. You know, it kind of lets you know. But they were all talking with my name on their little employee chat thing. Of Angie was in a theater, and she told this guy that he was going to hell. Well, whoever hadn't heard it at the theater now is hearing it with no recourse for me of just saying that I was in the movie theater, you know, sounding like Paul preaching, you're all going to hell. So... As he began to scream that at me, Renee was kind of shocked because she was the one that was agitating him and speaking to him, and I had said nothing. And immediately, I came down with fever. And the fever, it just started going over the top. Now we know a little bit more about what was happening. I knew I was under some kind of attack from what I had done, but I didn't really understand how witchcraft spirit worked. And so the thing was over with. I'd heard the testimonies. I bowed out of there, and I went home. So I'm at my house, and I'm at the top of my wooden stairs, and I'm, I'm like praying over the fever issue because I know it's a spiritual attack. It had come on me at the end of his finger. Literally, I had just felt that thing just grab a hold of me. At the top of my stairs, at that point, I felt something I had never felt before, but something grabbed me and pushed me. And from the very top of my wooden stairs, with no carpet on them, hard, old wooden stairs, I began to roll like a snowball, increasing momentum. The, the very unique thing about rolling down the length of these stairs was when I got to the uh, landing spot, I turned the corner and rolled the rest of the way to the floor. I'm like, wow, that was quite a push. It pushed me straight, and then I turned. I had rolled down the steps before, and, but it had been near the bottom, and I'd only fallen down five stairs in the beginning because I'd learned you cannot go down those stairs in socks. That had been like, never again was I going to wear socks near those staircases because I kept them very polished, and, and the socks just had a special effect but I had rolled down five steps and I had a bruise that looked like a football on me and so people would want to see my bruise to admire it and it was a blue football the same size as football and so when I make this um, unbelievable graceful landing at the bottom of my staircase uh, I felt like I had hit every single stair as I went to the very bottom of it 
And I was thinking, I, I didn't step down the staircase. I wasn't even going down the staircase. I was going into my office and something, like I've been pushed. My mind was screaming. The pain was excruciating. I couldn't think of anything on my body that didn't hurt. I'm face down and I'm laying there and I'm like, what's not broken? I mean, it's just every single piece of your body just feels like it's been broken to pieces. And, you know, after I was thinking about, you know, how long it had taken me to recover the last time, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, healing is already a settled matter with me. It's a past tense issue. And here I am laying uh, face down, screaming, and I can't move. I've never had that experience that I couldn't move. And I couldn't think of anything that didn't hurt. And the Lord said to me, I gave you a verse for this moment. A week before, he had spoke to me. And he told me, stand up and walk out of it. I felt kind of like this guy. Like, I didn't have anything that could stand up. And the kind of pain that I was in getting up, I... I don't even have words. I'm like, wow. And as I stood up, what was amazing is the pain stayed down on the floor. And when I stood up, I had no pain. I had no injuries. I had nothing. The pain stayed beneath my feet. When I was laying there, my body was racked in pain. I had no bruise from this. I had nothing. I stood up from what, if I had thought the first one was bad, I was kind of glad I had that experience to have something to compare it to. I had nothing. I literally stood up and walked out of it. And I asked the Lord, is it this simple? Really? Is it really this simple? That when the Lord gives you a command, that what seems impossible, I'm not going to tell you that standing up was possible. When I was getting up, I didn't think I could get up. I didn't, or at least there was no uh, confirmation as I stood up that I was going to have anything but excruciating pain because this, the, the, what it, the force it took to stand up, I was not healed. But when I was fully standing up, there was no pain like it had never happened. Now that I think about it, I've never even thought about that. There was no fever. <laughs> so, supernaturally, I had been knocked down those stairs. And supernaturally, I had been delivered from the results. And so today's message is titled, Stand Up and Walk Out of It. And we're going to need this for the days that we're living in. You know, sometimes we miss the prevention that heaven offers when heaven calls. And this Bible study is really for those times that you need it after you've been attacked. You know, I, I really like preventative prayer. I really like being able to turn a situation. But one of the hardest things to handle is when you've already been attacked and you're already down. If you stay down on the ground and you receive it, it's completely yours. And you will own every symptom and every repercussion, and you can name it and you can document it.
I don't know what went through Paul. I don't know what was going on in his mind. But it is the stand of faith that you will make. You can have a, a physical fall, a physical attack. But I was thinking um, also you can have one of uh, getting into sin. You remember the commercial? I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> That's how you'll feel like this. Well, I'm going to tell a very bad story on myself. But this road right here, I ran out my front door because I had to mail a letter. And I had on these really nice looking shoes. The minute they hit that pavement, I could have slid all the way down to the post office. So I jump off my curb, and there's an intersection. And at that point, it didn't have a light there. And when I slip down, with cars from four different directions, I fall flat on my face. I'm laying there on my face, and I'm tickled. And I was thinking about my great-great-grandmother, and something happened to her when where it was probably best that she didn't show her face. So that story was going through my mind, and I'm laughing, laying flat down, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to just let these cars go ahead and drive past me and not show who I am. You know, like they don't know who I am face down, so I'm going to just lay here, and I'm, I'm laughing, thinking about my great-grandmother. And then I have this thought of Brownwood drivers. And I'm thinking, I'm safe with one, two, three, four, because they've all seen the... Bam on my face. But there's going to be the guy behind them that's going to go around and think, why are these cars all stalled? And they're going to go, bump, <laughs> thump, and go on. And I'm not going to be laughing. And I had a, a voice say to me, the worst thing you can do is not stand up when you fall. That is the worst idea that you can have. And so <laughs> I get myself up and I thought, well, you might as well just share the joy. So I was laughing, and I stand back up, and I keep uh, running on down to the post office. And I've seen the same inclination of people that get into sin. The worst thing you can do in sin is lay there. I mean, everybody's seen you splash. But like me, I tell you this story on myself to let you know that when you fall, the worst thing you can do in sin it's just lay there. Think about me and how stupid I looked. And you can think of how you, you look. So in Proverbs 24, 16 through 18, you can see this. For a righteous man may fall seven times, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. For the just one falls seven times, and the unjust shall be weak and evil. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets up. But the wicked man stumbles in bad times. For a just man falls seven times and rises up. The New Living Translation says the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. Are you seeing the difference? Who stands up? The righteous. If you're wicked, you won't stand up. So this standing back up is something that shows your righteousness. Remember, what Abraham did by faith was counted as righteousness with God. Oh, it's tempting. It's tempting to lay there. It is tempting to just let some things pass. Another thing that I didn't do is when I fell down, I didn't go back to my front door and start the trip again. Somehow when we think that we fall in sin, we've got to go back to the beginning. No, where do you start from? Right where you get up from right where you fell. 
So don't think that you've got to go backwards. You stand up. And though a righteous man falls seven times, he will stand back up again, and he will keep going. And that's what's going to make the difference when whether you're righteous or not, whether you keep moving. Even if a good man falls seven times, he will get back up. But disaster destroys the wicked. So wicked people have no resilience. Wicked people can't bounce back. They can't come out of something. You know, I remember that I got into some spiritual warfare. And Jimmy Lau walked right in these doors. And he told me, Angie, I want you to learn something. When you're hit, you're going to have to stand up quicker. You've got to be very careful if you're slow to get back up. When you're hit, you've got to stand up faster. And spiritual warfare, the incident that happened to me on a reprisal attack in the beginning of this, sin, all these things act in a similar fashion. It's still based on how you react to it, how you handle it. You know, I was asking Jimmy the question of what should I do. I was expecting another answer from him. I was expecting him to give me something uh, like in regards to deliverance. But he told me, you're just going to have to stand up quicker. He said, how long when you go down, you know, when you get hit, how long do you stay down? I said, about three days. It was during this time that the wholesale staff quit at the radio station. One minor thing, and I just go to bed, <laughs> pull the covers over my head. I'm like, my whole cell staff has quit. And you're like, all the training, all that you put into them, you know, you're just like, how do I just keep going through this constantly in my life? You know, spiritual warfare is around your most vulnerable spots and also around your greatest victories. The spiritual warfare takes in both. They take in what makes you weak, and it takes in your very highest moment. You come home from the Philippines, bam. <laughs> you work with college kids in some of the most dangerous situations, and then you uh, have a problem with elementary kids, and you're not prepared for a movie show. You know, it's funny how the spiritual warfare gets around both. But I had something very personal happen in my family and I felt like literally I was pulling 3,000 arrows out of me. Like, the way they shot me, I was like, they hit me completely. Like, they can find your vulnerable spot after that day of thinking, this is very personal. I can't believe they've hit me like this. Like, they knew, they knew what would bother me. Did they study me and decide every single thing that would bother me and, sh and shoot the arrow right for that spot? I was like, I can't believe this. And the Lord asked me, did any of them really hit you? And I was sitting there thinking I looked like a, a quiver with so many arrows in me. And I said, no. I went through every arrow and I thought, no, it really didn't hit. It actually missed. It's funny that you can receive it. It's like laying on the floor and you can go, man, that was an emotional attack where somebody tried to take me out. Man, they tried to hurt my feelings. You know, you're just insulted. I had someone that I just, this week it happened to me that the Lord had given me this relationship in working with a problem that I'm having that the girl says to me, oh, you're the one that prayed for me in 2014. And, you know, I'm like, thank the Lord. It's just like the Lord gave me someone that, you know, I had some 
past history with, and, and she's in the right position. And then someone called and said, she hates you now. And I told Steph, my feelings are hurt. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like it's, it takes the miracle away. And it's constantly trying to do that. The enemy will try to steal the miracle that God gives you. It's like he's after that. He, he tries to steal the, um, the sacrifice, like with Abraham. It's like the enemy is always after that. This is the moment that you cannot be slow in getting back up. So you might be very successful in your physical life. You may be overcoming sin. But then sometimes emotionally, you've got to say, Jimmy Lau is walking in my door. And he's telling me, I can't be slow on this. You know, I had written these words down, this hurry up offense. One of my crossliners, he thought about Paul having to get back up again. And he came to me after the Bible study, and I wrote this down. He said, it reminds me of my football coach. And his football coach in high school would watch the films of the game. And if somebody was knocked down and had a slow getting back up. He had to give the coach a very good explanation why he was slow getting back up. So here's the coach watching the game, and he's watching every time one of his guys goes down. And what he wants from them is an explanation if they don't pop right back up in a hurry. These are his words. I want you to hear them. There's a difference between being hurt and being injured. And I thought those are good words from a coach. We stand up after both, but sometimes we lay there because we've been hurt. And he had those boys get right back up. And so a lot of times I'm thinking like it's a coach going to watch my film, and this will be my judgment day of, Angie, are you really going to just lay there? I mean, there's a whole... uh, what is it, witnesses on high watching the performance on the field, (laughs) and are you going to stand back up? The results when I've had a slow stand back up that take me out for three days. In boxing, you're knocked down, but you have to stand back up because you're still in the ring. What knocks you down when you feel like you're physically down for the count? You know, I was thinking about my mom. I meant to ask her a little bit about this, but she was asked to speak on a Christian cruise. It was amazing when Mother gets this invitation to speak on a Christian cruise, she doesn't even have to pray and ask the Lord. She knows it's God. (laughs) Caribbean, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll do whatever you want for me. So she's all prepared, and I mean, if you could have seen us with all her cassette tapes back then, I mean... And uh, she catches the three-day virus crud. Anybody else wouldn't make it. Most would have called it off. Can't pack. So her and her sister are crawling around on their hands and knees trying to pack their bags, (laughs) trying to put everything in it. But we know we're called to this mission field. (laughs) And so anyway, they're they're packing. And uh, they played the song, Rise and Be Healed. Can't walk. Hang your head over. (laughs) The miracle of the rocking ship. And then the sister is looking at my mom saying, Rise and be healed, Peggy Joyce. Rise and be healed. Rise and be healed, Peggy Joyce. Rise and be healed. And then she got it. And she goes, Angie, it was worse than I thought. (laughs) She goes, this isn't funny. 
And I go, healing isn't a, a, a test you can cheat on. And they stood up and walked out of it. They had good motive to. And mom did a great job on that cruise. So t- sometimes you emotionally just feel like your insides are beat up. Should we go into the area of marriage? Oh, surely not. I'll, I'll look at this group over here. One wife said, sometimes with my husband, I just have to go into my prayer closet and get over him. <laughs> and so anytime, uh, a lot of times during a, a fight, she'd just go, I'm headed to my prayer closet. You got to get up quicker. Something knocks you off. I just got to go in there and get over you. <laughs> Stirring yourself up. Aren't you glad you don't have to keep every emotion except every thought? I don't think people know this. This is the message to the world, that you don't have to keep every emotion except every thought. You know, everyone waits for that moment of elevation. And they think, oh, there's got to be a corresponding moment of depression. Who says you have to stay depressed? You can catch a glimpse of his love, brighter and more sweet. And they can't have it without being followed by long weariness and depression and darkness. But not us. We need not be at the mercy of our own unregulated feelings. We can have mastery over our hearts and keep them fixed, even if they should wish to wonder. Should I read more of Alexander McLaren? We can have mastery and authority over our hearts, keep them fixed. We must assert mastery of ourselves, use both bridle and spur on ourselves. A great many religious people seem to think that the good times come and go and they can do nothing to to bring or keep them or banish them. They think they have no control over their circumstances. They're powerless. But that is not so. If the fire is burning low, there is such a thing as a poker on the hearth, and coals that need to be stirred. Are there times you feel dry in your spiritual walk? Are there times your feelings are all over the place? Think of yourself as the hearth and the fire, and go get the poker, (laughs) and start stabbing the embers. When something's about to die down, you have a spiritual responsibility to stir yourself up. If we feel our our faith falling asleep, are we powerless to rouse it? Can we not say, I will trust? Let us know our religious emotions are largely subject to us. You know, as we read these words, this is what we have to have, is we tell ourselves how to feel. The power of God to get you back up. You know, I made note here of Acts 28, 3 through 8. And there's a principle with this power of getting yourself back up. But this is when Paul, uh, first he's worshipped again as a god. And then he's getting firewood. And as he's getting firewood, a viper comes out and bites him on the hand on the island of Malta. And then they go, you must be a murderer because this curse has come upon you that you've been bitten. And this most deadly of snakes, what does Paul do with it? What does Paul do with the deadliest? He just shakes it off into the fire. So they all sit around the fire waiting for him to die. There's times people are waiting for you to die. But Paul has just 
taken the snake that's the most deadly, hooked to his hand, and shakes him into the fire. You know, what God tells you to do, it will make no sense to your mind, and yet it will make complete sense to your mind. The facts, the poison, how the poison will react to, the blood, uh, to your blood. The power of God has the power to stop certain situations. You know, things are more spiritual than we think. I mean, these pagans recognize the spiritual side of it, but they don't interpret it right. How much more should we recognize some of the attacks that come against us are completely spiritual by nature? I was sitting at an event on um, Passion Sunday. We're studying the crucifixion. It's in the best part of the sermon. We've, we've decided to have a picnic outside. I love the way that my parents would celebrate some of the holidays and Seal had put this together. <laughs> I, I had this experience of seeing a bee flying towards me. And the bee went straight into my eye and stung me in the eye. Right during the Passion, <laughs> I get stung in the eye. What everyone else sees, they don't see that happen to me. They see me take my head and I'm slapping myself in the eye. I'm just slapping, slapping, slapping. The ne person next to me lays hands on me and starts praying as I'm slapping. I, I bruise myself. I hit myself so much. But it's the same thing of shaking the, the viper into the fire. I'm like, that was demonic. I mean, to sit here, and now I'm one-eyed. You know, I'm listening to the sermon, and, I, you know, the devil doesn't want everyone listening to the crucifixion. They want them watching me hit myself in the eye. And it wasn't something I just felt like I could ignore. But I kill the bee, and I'm looking at it, and I write something down when I get home. If it came on you quickly, it can come off of you quickly. And when it's sheer ridiculous when it's surely completely an attack by the devil that's when I have the most faith I'm like there's no way that this could happen in the natural I mean how many people do you know that the bee flies and hits you in the eye and manages to sting you on Passion Sunday in the best part of the sermon that was meant to ruin my sermon I didn't even know what the doctors would do for it so I don't have to understand it to get in agreement with God's word. So if it comes on you quickly, I have been delivered by that word itself. If it comes on me quickly, I can get it off just as quickly. It will come off quickly if it comes on you quickly. I will not bore you with the time that I get hit in the head in Israel and the taxi cab driver jumps out and comes around the car to see who hit me in the back of the head. There's times it makes no rational sense. Life is more spiritual than we give it credit. I can't think of a better story than this one to explain, standing back up. You talk about a step of ultimate faith. This story here that I'm about to tell you was a story that was one of my favorite two stories to speak in the youth prison. I kept it folded up in my Bible. I'm going to read it to you because it literally is an exact picture of this scripture with Paul. His name is Robert Emanuel, and a good friend of mine that helped me on the Israel Project interviewed this guy. Robert was assistant manager at a large superstore at a young age. 
and Robert, he was a big guy, a weightlifter. So when this guy came in and he was trying to cash a check with a fake driver's license and they put it through the scanner, what pops up is detain this man and hold him for the police. It didn't bother Robert. He had bulked up legs and big biceps. He called the LAPD and he said, I've got this man detained for you. But what happened next was what Robert didn't expect. There was motion and he looked over and the guy had slipped the handcuffs off and had already grabbed the pistol from the security guard. Now the wrong man is armed. Robert puts his whole weight into him and throws himself at the man lunging for the gun, horrified that the guy would kill someone in the store. Next, what he felt was the bullet when it hit his leg. Not only did the, the bullet crash through his femur, but somehow it managed to travel up his leg to his hip and onto his spine. Losing all feeling from waist down, Robert still wasn't gonna let this situation get out of hand. He continued to wrestle with the guy until he was able to subdue the attacker. Now, at 22 years of age, he had survived the attacker, but now he didn't know if he could survive the rest of his life. Robert was taken home, and he was taken home to go into his mother's care. It was so bad that he had to be taken care of like a baby. Robert couldn't even make it to the bathroom by himself. He was in a bed or he was in a wheelchair. That was the two places of his existence. He was just thinking, if I could just concentrate just enough, if I could just in my mind believe it just enough, I could move my foot and nothing had happened. Robert told about times where he would concentrate so hard and strain so much he would break out in a cold sweat. He couldn't help but think about the fact when he'd break out in a cold sweat, he thought of Jesus' sweating blood. Then his girlfriend, she had had enough. She wasn't prepared for this, so she leaves Robert. Robert, again, his mind reflected on the scripture, and he thought of Jesus' friends leaving him in his worst moment. Robert said the loss of a relationship hurt worse than the bullet. As that darkness descended upon Robert, the doctor that was treating him sent him to a psychiatrist. This doctor knew that the real battle for Robert was in his mind. The psychiatrist told him, he said, Robert, you've got to see yourself as a hero. You saw the situation. You were horrified. You did something about it. You sacrificed yourself to save others. You're a real hero. You've got to accept it. You can't keep denying this. But the philosophy of the psychiatrist conflicted with his belief that by his stripes, the price had been paid for his healing. Robert now was in more conflict. He couldn't believe both. Was he the sacrifice or was Jesus? He believed it with all of his heart. Why couldn't he move his legs? He thought about the fact that he had had a call on his life to be in the ministry, but he really didn't want to be one of those preachers that were the kind that he had seen growing up. And on top of it, Robert didn't feel qualified to be in the pulpit. He believed it with all of his heart, but yet he had this tiny thought in the back of his mind, does this faith stuff really work? 
Now laying in bed day after day, that tiny question was screaming, does this faith stuff really work? 11 months later, he was watching a man preach on TV. It seemed that he was speaking straight to Robert. The man leaned forward in the camera and said, if you really believe God's word, you would get out of that wheelchair. Now act on it. Robert started crying. Those words were cruel. They cut into him. That man had never been paralyzed. He didn't understand what it was like. He didn't understand what it would be like day after day. Robert was torn up from what that guy had said on the TV. Robert thought, relieved to himself, well, at least the next preacher coming on, I'm going to like him better. He's more gentle than this guy. That guy wouldn't do to him what this last one would. Robert was waiting to hear something else, some other word. But to his surprise, he didn't get a comforting message. In fact, it was infuriating. The preacher leaned towards the camera. It looked like he was speaking straight to Robert. If you really believe God's word, you will act on it. That's it. I'm going to act on it. He put all of his weight on his arms and he pushed himself upright to where his legs hung limp and lifeless. Robert said, Father, I'm going to act on your word. And if it kills me, then I'm going to go straight into your throne room and ask you, why didn't your word work? He took a deep breath. He let go of the wheelchair and fell like a crushing blow to the floor. He sobbed. He labored to get himself back up into that wheelchair. Not to be deterred, once again, he lifted himself up with his arm weight. Satan was whispering to him the whole time, you're going to kill yourself. You know these preachers are all fakes. They take your money in exchange, and what do they give you, false hope? You're going to kill yourself. He released his hole on this wheelchair and crumbled like trash to the floor. He sobbed from fatigue. He sobbed from disappointment. He rested. Laying on the floor, he pulls himself back up on that wheelchair. For the third time, he now pushed himself in the upright position. The devil was still mocking him in his thoughts, but this time the devil overplayed his hand. You can't be a good Christian in a wheelchair. The words welled up in Robert with fury. Furious this time, he shoved the wheelchair away as he let go. Then, for the space of about four heartbeats, he stood. He stood. He stood before he fell. This time, Robert laughed and cried with unspeakable joy. The word works. Sure, it had only been four seconds, but paralyzed legs stood. If they can stand for four seconds, then they can stand for four minutes, and then they can stand for four hours. And if paralyzed legs can stand, then they can walk. And if paralyzed legs can walk, then they can run. Robert said that his legs felt like they had been asleep and they had been awoken from the sleep. It felt like a million needles were sticking him now all at once. But Robert didn't mind the pain. He could feel his legs. Robert spent the next two hours pulling himself up, standing briefly and falling. That afternoon, his mother walked in his room and stopped suddenly and stared. Robert, what are you doing? You can't walk. Robert was spread eagle. His hands were against the wall, straining from exertion. 
He took tiny, jerky little sidesteps. Robert Emanuel was walking to the bathroom alone. Mom, he gasped, I'm walking. From then on, when I need to sit, he said, I sat on the sofa. I knew that was a big part of my acting out my faith, was shoving the security of my wheelchair away from me. I wasn't going to go back to it. The next time I went to see my neurologist, I walked into his office and I sat on the exam table. I passed all the neurological tests. The doctor kept saying over and over, this is incredible. This is incredible. Then he released me. Finally, all the doctors released him except one. Guess which one didn't release him? The psychiatrist. <laughs> he kept wanting to see Robert. He had one more question to ask every time, the same question. Do you think some power from God came into you and caused you to walk? Robert was ready. Yes, that is exactly what I think. Robert's fight back to full health and full strength wasn't over, but he did take the next step. A physical therapist transferred him to a gym, and he began his workouts. Robert didn't just develop his body, but he worked on his faith. On New Year's Day, 1984, Robert was outside walking, and a thought persisted in his mind. Why don't you run? He said, I acted. Seconds later, I was running, 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 feeling the breeze on his face. He picked up one foot and then the other. So simple, but what a miracle. What a miracle. The simple act of running. Robert wept with joy. When the story was written almost 10 years later, Robert was the pastor of a new church. If this man is a hero to some, it isn't because he sacrificed his life for others. It is because he knows that there was and is only one sacrifice, the one who sacrificed himself for all. Now, if this is not a story of standing up and walking out of it, I've never heard one. You know, this isn't for the faint-hearted. And I can't tell you how many times I preached to myself that sermon. And it hadn't been in my best hours that I've thought about that, that man in a wheelchair. Did he believe? Maybe the time he believed the most was when he had, was laying on the floor and nothing had happened. And he was bloody and he said, I'm going to do it again. Do we believe? You'll preach yourself this over and over again. But remember, you don't have to understand it to be in agreement with it. There's got to be something inside of you where your insides stand up. It reminds me of the teacher who told the little boy, sit down. And the little boy sat down. But he said, teacher, I have something to say to you. She said, what's that? I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. I'm going to tell you, you may be laying on the floor. <laughs> the teacher may have gotten your behind in the seat, but you've got to be standing up on the inside because the devil may get you laying on the floor. They may have left you for dead. So great comebacks must be 
what Lazarus must have felt like, the great comeback, a choice pulling you to give up, just let go, where your life is knocked out of your body. Will you let yourself return to your body and finish your work? You hear your name being called by the Lord. You're Lazarus. Are you going to let yourself return to your body and finish your, your life? You know, Rickenbacker, the famous guy in World War I and World War II, he said, you've got to have a will to live because he said death comes with a beautiful face to seduce you. And he said it's the sweetest face with the sweetest feeling because all pain stops. I studied the submarine captain that was blown up and floating in the ocean. He said it's, death is easy, but the fight to live is the real fight. Death has put Lazarus away, but he stands back up when he hears his name. It's a voice he can't resist. You hear your name and you're wrapped in, in rags. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. You heard that song? Get up, get up, get up. You got to play it. Get up out of that grave. Stand up and walk out of it. Stand back up when you're wrapped up, decayed. Listen to this. You stand back up when you stink. Whatever he died of, Lazarus was at the point he stunketh, as the King James said. He's decayed. <laughs> he looks like a mummy. And he's still got what element he died of until the power of God hits him. Your life causes other people to stand up and walk out of it. Oh, Elisha, you may have died. They may have put you in a sepulcher. But in 2 Kings 13, they had buried Elisha, but the Moabites come into the land. They invade. The next year, one year later after you're dead, as they passed by, they were digging a hole, burying a man. And they don't have time because these raiders and invaders are coming in. So they open up the sepulcher. And you've seen those Jewish tombs. They carve these boxes. And they open up the lid and they just throw the dead man in there. But the power of God hits the dead man and he comes back alive. When he touched the bones of Elisha, the man stood on his feet. Oh, there's many ways to stand on your feet. But when you stand on your feet, your life causes other people to stand up on their feet. But when you climb out of the hole, that's when you're anointed clear to your bones. So, like this man that was listening to Paul as he spoke, when Paul fixed his gaze on the man, Paul could tell something about the guy, that he had enough faith to believe so when Paul says to him, stand up on your feet, he leaped up and he began to walk. You know, Paul had to tell him what to do. And just like the many ways that Paul told this man what to do, I had to believe that I could stand up and walk out. The next thing you do after you've gone through something traumatic like this, when this many people have rejected you, when this many people have been hostile, hit you with stones, you go to therapy. You go to counseling. You definitely need a missionary's relief weekend, don't you? Paul needs a little bit of, let's work you through the PTSD of this. 
Yeah, it shows it, verse 19, look at it. So they left him for dead. He stands up when they all circle around him. And the next day, he and Barnabas get up and go preach in Derby. You've got to be kidding. They don't go for counseling. They don't go for, they, they don't go for therapy. They don't go get a, a weekend off. They get up and they go do what God has for them to do. I was laying in a taxi. I was horizontal. Brother Jacob had rented me a taxi because I was that sick in India. I got tickled. Someone last night told me they wanted to go to India. They said, you ever get sick over there? I thought, which time? So I'm laying there, and you're sick at a point you never thought you could be sick at. And I thought, wasn't it sweet of him to rent me this taxi so I could lay flat as you expire? <laughs> and Brother Jacob whispers to me in the sweet voice that only Brother Jacob can, can use. I'm like, will I live to return to see my mom, my dad, to the land of the living? Will I ever feel right again? Will my Texas stomach ever recover? But no, the lips of a voice that doesn't sound like a stranger to me says to me, tonight you will preach your first crusade. <laughs> that means I'm going to be standing. <laughs> it was that night when I preached, he says, I have never heard a sermon any better than the sermon you just preached. I've never heard a better sermon. He said, don't ever do it again. You'll get us killed. And he put a guard on me. Yeah, the power of God hits you. Paul, with all his blows to his body, stand up and walk out of them. Sometimes when we miss the prevention phone call from heaven, we have to be able to overcome after we've been attacked. This is the lesson for after it's already happened to us. And this is what to do when we've already received the problem, when we've already had ourselves knocked down. You know, the person themselves and the assignment, your assignment will stand you back up on your feet. My job is not finished. That's how I know it's not my time to go. Amen. You know, it's that thing, like, it doesn't matter where you're at, you have the choice who you're going to obey. Like, y you can choose to obey the devil and stay where you're at, or you can choose to obey the voice of the Lord. You wonder if that, you know, you're reading that verse where that guy instantly got up from not being able to walk, and you wonder if it's not instant because we don't obey. Like, that we're not completely convinced. It's so odd to me of... Like growing up, my thinking was very rational. And you, you know, you have a reason why everything is the way that it is in the natural world, let's say, like what you can see, what you can perceive. And you think that's how the world works. And then you get around how the Lord does things and you question everything you know because it doesn't work that way. You are just blind. It's that willingness to get up to obey God's word. That is when the power of God hits you. That's when it works. Like God's word is always powerful. It's always there. It's always active. But it's your choice. Like it's your choice whether you're going to get in agreement with God's power 
or be a victim or be whatever's just happened to you. And we don't think that way because it doesn't, like how you feel over here in the enemy's thing, you don't feel like you have a choice. Like when you talk to people and they're completely under it or, or you're completely under it, nothing in them thinks or feels that they can walk. They can come out of their depression. They can come out of however the enemy's hit them. But it's because the enemy's lied to them and they believe they don't have a choice. But if they'll actually get over here and, and like that guy throwing himself up against the wall, no, I'm going to choose to believe this. I'm going to choose to believe what God's word says versus this right here. That's what causes it to work in your life. But we have a choice. And we choose what we can come into agreement with. Like one of the guys we ministered to pretty regularly, I don't remember if he called me this time or if he was texting me, but he like, like his head is very rational. He's been to all the counselors. He's been to all this stuff. Like when he's in one of those fits, he'll be like, well, the depression's real. It's real with the, the psychologist. What they told me is real. Like I feel it. It's real. Like it's terrible. And he starts speaking. He's agreeing. Everything the enemy is saying, he is saying. He is in agreement. And I remember telling him, this is the time you have to stand and fight. When it feels the worst, you have to stand and fight right now. You have to speak the name of Jesus. You have to speak the promises right now and speak what the Word of God says. Instead of speaking, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I'm scared of that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And you push and you push and you push, and then he just, i got to go for a walk outside. He, he resorts to the natural. Because I've experienced in my own life, like going to Angie, you, you have the choice of, am I going to listen to what the person that's not crazy at this moment is saying, or am I going to listen to myself? Like, <laughs> just be real. And you learn over time, well, I'm going to choose this, and it works. But I, I just remember being so frustrated with them, because you're like, if you would just listen right now, if you would just do, if you would just have faith and listen to what you're being told, you can walk. It's, I think Pat did that in Sunday school once with uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter. And, you know, they're all in the boat, and it's a storm, and Jesus is walking, and they think he's a ghost, and they're all terrified. And Peter figured this out because he says, Lord, if it's you, command me, and I'll walk. So Peter figured out every time Jesus tells us to do something, it's not like a religious command where he's forcing us to, you know, follow this rule or whatever. There's an empowerment that comes with it. There is the ability to do something that you as a human being cannot do. And that's what Peter's wanting from the Lord. He's saying, Lord, if that's you on the water, command me, and I trust your word, so I know I'll be able to walk on it. I'll be able to walk on the water. And that's what Peter did for a couple seconds. <laughs> and then he fell. But it's that principle that we have to get down. What you feel and think and see many times is true, it's real, it's really happening, it's demonic, but you have a choice whether to stay there or whether to walk on the water or whether to get up out of your sickbed. It's very good, Angie.